Father, who are we? That we can come into your presence like this. And to know that you are longing to draw close to us. To speak to us. To minister to our hearts. Oh God, would you do something special in this place this morning? Would this Christmas be something different for each and every one of us? May we come into contact with Jesus, see you more clearly, understand your love more deeply than we ever have before. Thank you, Father, for pouring out the Holy Spirit on us this morning. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can go ahead and sit down. We'll make you stand the whole time. So Tony was on a trip to Hawaii. He was from the East Coast. And does anybody know what is the time change if you're going from Hawaii to uh, the East Coast or the East Coast to Hawaii? Six hours. So you know what happened to Tony when it was 3 a.m.? He just arrived in Hawaii the night before. 3 a.m. comes around. And what happens when you're on jet lag with six hours? It's like it's 9 a.m. And so Tony, it feels like it's 9 a.m. to him. And what time for him usually happened at 9 a.m. was to eat breakfast. And so Tony got up and he thought, I'm going to go eat breakfast. It's 3 a.m. in Honolulu. So Tony begins to walk around the streets of Honolulu. And he's looking for a place that's open at 3 a.m. in order to have breakfast. And there are very few places open at 3 a.m. to have breakfast. But fortunately, as he was going along, he found a diner. And he thought, well, this will do. It's not my normal fare for breakfast, but I'll go into the diner. And as he went into the diner, it was just him and a big guy named Harry behind the counter. Harry had a greasy apron on. He'd obviously had a long night. But he said, can I have some breakfast? And Harry said, sure. We'll be open for another few hours, and we'll, we'll help you out. Well, he served him up breakfast, and he was there sitting at the counter. And as he was there sitting at the counter, focused on his breakfast, all of a sudden, the doors opened. And in walked... A group of women who were up all night too. And as these women sat down and they actually sat on either side of him and all along the bar, he began to feel kind of awkward because he realized that this was a group of prostitutes who had just finished their night's work. He was kind of keeping his eyes on his food as he was eating. And as he was eating, all of a sudden he heard the one next to him begin to say, you know what? It's my birthday tomorrow. The girl next to her said, so what? Who cares? I said, well, why do you have to be so hard on me? You know, I've never had a birthday party in my entire life. Tony began to think. And as he thought, he began to get an idea. But you're probably thinking, what in the world do prostitutes and birthdays have to do with Christmas? And I didn't see any connection to that originally myself until I was opening up my Bible to read the Christmas story this year. And as I went to read the Christmas story, many of you probably start in Luke chapter 2, or maybe you'll start midway into Matthew chapter 1. But I want to challenge you to open up to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, because this is where Matthew starts the Christmas story, and we're going to find that he actually starts it talking about birthdays and prostitutes. Matthew chapter 1. The Bible is a lot more interesting than you realize. Sometimes you might go to read through the New Testament and you might start with Matthew chapter 1 and you think, what is going on here? How many of you have ever tried to read through Matthew and gotten discouraged in the first chapter? My hand's the only one raised, but it's happened to me when I was younger. I thought this was terrible, right? So Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy, 
of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right? So this is a a way of basically continuing the entire Old Testament. Really, we should rip out the page. Don't do this in your Bible because it's kind of a desecration. But we should rip out the page between the Old Testament and the New Testament because Matthew's just continuing on from the Old Testament. He's continuing on the genealogies. He's continuing on to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was going on in the Old Testament. So here he is. He says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then we get to the exciting part. After saying he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, that's pretty interesting. That's pretty exciting to know Jesus is a really important person. But then he goes on to say this. Abraham begot Isaac. Okay, so Isaac had a birthday. Isaac begot Jacob. Okay, Jacob had a birthday. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. And pretty soon your eyes are drifting down the page and you're thinking, okay, is he going to go through every single one of Jesus' grandparents? And why? What's the purpose? I mean, this is a Holy Spirit-inspired book. God preserved this for thousands of years, and, and he preserved it. What's the purpose? Why is this here? Verse 3, it gets interesting, though. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Now, it's interesting, if you were to go back to the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 2, I believe it is, has a lineage of David, and it goes through and it lists some of these same people, but there's a difference here. Any guesses what the difference is here? Perez is mentioned there. Who does it mention? It mentions a mother. And who is this mother? Tamar. All right, do any of you remember this story? Right? This is the story in the book of Genesis that most of us, when we get to Genesis chapter 38, we're like, okay, let's skip that chapter. Because in Genesis chapter 38, we read about Judah, and after selling Joseph, he maybe is upset with his brothers. We're not sure why, but he moves away from his brothers. He marries an unnamed Canaanite woman. He has three sons, and then he gets a wife for the oldest son. The oldest son, we're told, is not a nice guy, and he ends up dying. And so he brings the youngest son. Okay, this is, this is also strange if you're not familiar with the Old Testament. But back then, it was very important for the family line to be carried on. Property was tied to the name of, a male, uh, of the males in the family. And if you didn't have a male child, you lost your property. And so a part of what they had was called the Leverite marriage law, where if a brother older brother died his brother had the duty of coming and making marrying the wife which it's it's interesting because um, some commentators say that it would have been had to have been a virgin brother thankfully so he's supposed to come and he's supposed to marry his brother's wife and take care of the problem of not having male children i don't know if i'm making any sense at this point but i hope you're i hope you're tracking along with me because this is what happened in the story with judah The older son dies, so the middle son, Judah says, okay, well, I'll take my middle son to marry Tamar. Tamar is the person that we're talking about here. This is why this is relevant. You're wondering if I'm going on tangents, but this is Tamar. So he goes to marry Tamar, and he does something very, very crass and unfortunate in that he denies her the right of being able to have children. And he also dies. 
So at this point, Judah is getting a little worried. I've got one son left. Everyone that marries Tamar dies, and so I'm not going to have another son marry Tamar. And so he says, well, Tamar, my son is really young, and his name was Sheila. Uh, no offense, but his name was Sheila, because <laughs> we have a Sheila here for those of you that don't know, but it's an Old Testament name. I'm sure your parents were thinking better than that. So I'm sorry. <laughs> so ah, where was I? <laughs> this story is crazy, I'm telling you. You can get totally lost in it. The younger son, Sheila, he is taken by his father and not given to Tamar. And Tamar says that, uh, Judah says to Tamar, go and put on widow's garments. And he puts on widow's garments and she's to go live with her parents. After time passes by, she's looking at Sheila saying, Sheila's growing up and Judah's not giving him to me as a husband. I think that this isn't fair. What's happening here isn't good. And then she finds out that Judah's wife has died. And to make a long story short, Judah is partying due to the time of sheep shearing. And he goes to the, the, the town of Timnah. And when he goes there, Tamar is dressed up with a veil, which was a dress that could be for a woman that's betrothed, or it could also be for a cultic prostitute. And so she's there, sitting there, and Judah assumes that she's betrothed? No, assumes that she's a cultic prostitute. And he tries to hire her and ends up giving her his seal and his staff in order to secure her favors as a prostitute. So here you have the story of Tamar, okay? What would you call that? I would call that incest, right? So we find in Jesus' family history, as Matthew's coming and he's giving us this glorious picture of who Jesus is, he wants us to understand that he's the son of David, he is the heir to the throne, he starts off and he highlights, especially in David's genealogy, that this guy, his great-great-great-grandmother, was in an incestuous relationship. But not only that, this having of Perez and Zerah took place in what Judah believed was based on when he goes back and he sends his friend to pay for the services. He sends uh, a goat, and the guy is looking for a, it says in the Hebrew, a cultic prostitute. So you get what Judah's doing? He's participating in not just a prostitute services, but he's going to a cultic prostitute. He's participating in the Canaanite religion. He's totally forsaking his God-fearing ways, and he's gone after this terrible thing, right? So this is the picture that we're seeing as we go through Matthew chapter 1. So you're thinking, I may not read this when I sit by the Christmas tree this year. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 4 continues, and it says, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashan, and Nashan begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. What do you notice here? Again, somebody has pointed out in the genealogy that's not pointed out in David's lineage previously. Here you find that Rahab is one of David's great-great-grandparents. And who was Rahab? You remember that story. They're on the verge of the, going into the, the promised land. 
Now, Rahab gets a bad rap because she was a prostitute, but you have to realize the thing that she did was pretty incredible. She's in this foreign city, this massive walled city, and she decides to put her life at risk to shield these two Hebrew spies who come to her house from the king and from, from the whole, whole city, and she tells a lie in order to help them escape, and then she lowers them down over the wall. But, but this is highlighted. Rahab. And Rahab, who was she? She was a prostitute again, and she was also a Canaanite. And who else is highlighted in this verse? If we go back to that verse again, uh, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. You remember the story of Ruth? Ruth was also not a Hebrew. I mean, Matthew is writing, we can tell from his writing, that he's writing to the Jews. He wants to convince them that Jesus is the Son of David. Jesus is the one that you should look to as the Messiah. He started off by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And his Tamar was his grandma, and Rahab was his grandma, and Ruth the Moabite was also his grandma. Do you see how scandalous really this is as we go through this? And we see that he is highlighting some characteristics of Jesus' past that aren't the most, uh, shall we say, enduring to the Jewish hearts as to where Jesus is coming from. So we see not only do we have incest, cultic prostitution, a prostitute, a Canaanite, Moabite, but then it goes on in verse 6. And Jesse begot David the king, and David the king begot Solomon. So good so far, but then it goes, by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Okay, now this is probably the worst story in the entire Bible. You thought Tamar was a bad story, but the story of Uriah's wife Bathsheba and what David does to her, I mean here, we won't go into it, but basically you could call it rape, what takes place, a power rape, but not only that, adultery is taking place, you have murder taking place as he murders Uriah. This is scandalous what Matthew is recording here. And if we were to go on to continue reading, we'd see a bunch more names on here uh, to get us to where Joseph is begotten. You have names like Manasseh, the most evil king. It says that he he caused the Israelites to do worse than the heathen. He led them to sacrifice their children. You have names like Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah, it says here, who was actually buried outside of Jerusalem. He was given the, the... the burial of a donkey because he was so evil. King after king here, and there's some good kings here. There's Hezekiah and some other things. But as you look at this, it's not a pretty picture. It's not a family story that you want to be your family story. And then it gets down to, and Jacob begot Joseph, a husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. And this is how he goes to convince the Jews that they need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. This is how the Christmas story begins. With difficulty after difficulty, with trial after trial that took place in the life history that led to Jesus being born. Verse 18, it goes on to say this. Now, 
the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So again, you have this interesting situation where Mary is said to have been with child by the Holy Spirit, and then you find Joseph beginning to ponder, what should I do with Mary? And he's a just man, and she's telling him this story about an angel who appeared to to him, but it says there in the story that, that he is thinking to divorce Mary because she's with child, and she has this wild story. All over the Christmas story is is pictures of things that are difficult and that are hard to understand. Goes on to say in verse 121, though, the angel appears to to, um, Joseph in a dream and tells him it's okay. What's conceived in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will, what does it say? Save his people from their sins. Friends, I believe this is a key verse. Because if Jesus just stepped into our story as some stately king who hadn't had all of this rich baggage in his family line, if Jesus stepped into the story as somebody apart from us, then it would be hard to see him as the one who can really rescue us, who can really see the bondage that we are in and who can really deliver us out of that. But when you recognize in Jesus' own family history, there's incest, there's cultic prostitution, there's Canaanites and Moabites and adultery and murder, all of this stuff going on in his family, you have to realize that there's something special about the God of the universe who would come that close to what really hits home for us. They would come into the mess of this world. They would allow his family, uh, they would come into a family that was, I mean, he could have picked any family. But he chose to be born to Mary and Joseph. Romans 8 tells us that it was for this purpose. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of, of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God sent his own son. He sent Jesus to be born from all of this line of of difficulties and sins and trials and heartache and suffering. And he sent him into the midst of this so that we could see that we have a God who wants to raise us up out of the very depths of depravity that we might be in in our lives. It's crucial that we grasp this this Christmas, that Jesus is the one who can save his people from their sins. Not just in their sins, but somebody who wants to deliver us from our sins. Somebody who cares about what you've been going through in your life. And I don't know what it's like for you. Maybe some things on this list ring true for you. Maybe you've been the victim of adultery in your life. Maybe you've had somebody in your family murdered. Or maybe it's been other things in your life that you just can't understand why this sin continues to plague you in your life. But we are told that we have a Savior and His name is Jesus. And His actual name 
means Yahweh saves. His name means salvation. He was sent for the very purpose of delivering us from all of this mess. In fact, Micah prophesied about Jesus. Another verse that we read at Christmas, Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah. That's how they knew that, that he was to be born in Bethlehem. Through you, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. The good news is that Jesus has always had the plan to come and to save us from this mess that we are in. Jesus has always had the plan to come close to you in the mess that you might find yourself in this morning. His plan is to come to you as a Savior this Christmas. But the good news is that it's not just that He comes now. It's not just that He's come since the day that He was born in Bethlehem. But what does it say? When are His comings from? His goings forth with are from? Of old, from everlasting. He's the God who has always been coming. And if we go back and we look again at these stories, we recognize that all along, Jesus was in the midst of these stories. Jesus was the Savior even for Tamar. Do you believe it? Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3, we saw that Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. The story of Tamar ends with this. She is called in verse, Genesis 38 and verse 24. It says, And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. Hey, Judah, here's the deal. Your daughter-in-law has been unfaithful and she's pregnant. You know how she's supposed to be a widow and she's supposed to be uh, mourning her widowhood? Well, she's been unfaithful and now she's pregnant. So Judah, being the righteous man that he's not, said, So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Talk about hypocrites. Of all hypocrites. Can you imagine what it's like for Judah when the realization comes to him? Don't just have to imagine. Verse 25, when she was brought out, she's about ready to be burned. She sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And Judah's response, so Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. And notice, and he never knew her again. The story doesn't continue with all, and then they went on in this incestuous relationship, but things changed at that point. And things become really, really beautiful in a way that I personally appreciate because it says in verse 27, Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. Do you know that there are only like two or three maybe sets of twins that are mentioned in the Bible? Do you know how hard it is to have twins naturally? About 2% of natural conceptions have twins. And if you're going to talk about identical twins, all right, it's, it's something like 0.4%, although with in vitro fertilization like we did, identical twins could maybe be up to 3% or something like that. It's not a very common thing. It's such a beautiful thing. It's such a miraculous thing. And so you see how Jesus shows up for Tamar. 
Tamar who has been set aside, Tamar who has been mistreated, Tamar who has been not given what she was supposed to be given, she makes some bad choices, I will admit. Her way of going about things is not right. But do you see how Jesus shows up even in our mistakes? Even in the worst things that you may be doing in your life. Jesus can take that and He can turn it around for good in your life. That's what He says, Romans 8, 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Did He do that for Tamar? Tamar, who made a bad choice, who decided to get her father-in-law to come and sleep with her and God turns it around so that she can have twins and one of those twins is the great 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 grandfather of Jesus Christ we serve an amazing God we serve a God who's able to redeem the mistakes of our lives and to turn those things around and to set us on an entirely different path she didn't know Judah again she didn't continue in that Jesus brought her to a whole new life And this morning you may be thinking, no, you don't understand. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. I'm in situations, and and in order to get out of where I'm at right now, the only way out is to make more bad choices. But I'm telling you this morning that His name is Jesus, and He will save His people from their sins. You have a Redeemer, and His name is Jesus, and He's longing to lift you out of whatever mess you might find yourself in this morning if you'll only trust Him. If you only let him, he will work all those things, even the mistakes of your life that he didn't want, he didn't choose, he will turn those around for good if you'll only let him. And we find that with story after story. Uh, As we continue on, we look at the verse 5, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Did Rahab experience the beautiful power of Jesus in her life? Well, she tells us as much. In Joshua chapter 2 and verse 11, when the spies are there, she's talking to the spies and she says this, and as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. What things is she talking about? She's talking about 40 years beforehand. She says, we saw how you crossed the Red Sea. She's saying 40 years later, we still remember how good God is to you Israelites. And because of that, 40 plus years later, our hearts melted and neither did there remain any more courage in any because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. For the past 40 years, Rahab has been worshiping a God that she didn't know if she'd ever get to come into contact with. She didn't feel like she was a part of his people. And yet she recognized that there was a God in Israel. And God saved Rahab out of that mess. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. You remember the story of Ruth. Here she is a Moabite, and her mother-in-law actually tells her, look, stay in Moab. I don't have any more things to offer you. I don't have any children to offer you. I don't, there's no hope for you there. Nobody's going to marry you in Israel. Do you realize if you go back there, it's not going to work out? She said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Ruth 1 and verse 15. But Ruth, Ruth is seeing something beautiful about God. Ruth has seen something in Jesus that she wants. And I hope this Christmas that you've seen something in Jesus that you want. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you. Her sister's already turned away. Orpah has decided to leave. She says, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. 
For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. She's lost her husband. She's lost her father-in-law. She's in a famine-stricken land. They're going to go back as a widow and daughter, two widows with no hope. And yet she's clinging to the Messiah. Before he's come, his comings are from everlasting. From of old, Jesus has always been coming. He's coming into your experience today, and he's always been coming into everyone's life throughout history. And one day we're all going to stand before him, and we're going to praise him. All of us will recognize, whether we've chosen him or not, we will recognize in the experiences of our life that Jesus has showed up time and time and time and time again because his goings forth are from of everlasting. What an incredible God he is. And you know, as you read these stories, you have to recognize how much value there is in this genealogy we read this and we just read names on a page. But I appreciate this so much more when I think about how I'm standing here today. Have you thought about what would happen if something different were to happen with your parents, with your grandparents, with your great-great-grandparents? You would not be here today if it weren't for your genealogy. Jesus would not have been born as the human that he was if it weren't for this genealogy. He chose to come into that stream of human history. And in my life, I think about why I'm standing here today, and I realize that God brings something out of tragedy. You see, my mom was married. She was happily married to a pastor. And they had my older brother, about seven and a half years before me, and they were happily married and didn't want for tragedy to strike in their lives. But if any of you have ever heard my mom's testimony before, that husband died in a swimming accident. My brother's dad died. Can God bring beauty out of tragedy? Can God take the worst circumstances of your life, even though he didn't choose it, even though he didn't want it, he didn't want those things to happen, can he bring beautiful things out of it. I have to believe so because I'm here. (laughs) Because my dad married my mom, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that tragedy. That's my humble belief. And I believe that in your life, God works all things together for good. That he's always been coming and he will keep on coming into your experience. Whether you invite him or not, he's going to be there for you. And my only prayer this Christmas is that we'll open our hearts and let him be a full and complete Savior that will really let him save us from our sins. But what about David? I mean, of all people, and Jesus, Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. So here's a story where you have him forcing a woman named Bathsheba to come to his home And then eventually killing her husband when he finds out that she's pregnant. Does God show up in a situation like that? Can God turn even a situation like that around for good? Obviously, he didn't want it. Obviously, that was the last of the things that he wanted to happen on this planet. But can God turn even that around for good? God is merciful. We see this in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13 when Nathan the prophet comes to David and says, look, 
<laughs> Look at what you've done. He t- tells it in a parable, but David is convicted. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Is there mercy and grace available when we have fallen that far into grave adultery, maybe even rape, when we have uh, gone to the place of murdering somebody? Verse 13 continues, And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Friends, there is hope for you in Jesus this morning. There is hope in a Savior who will save you from your sins. No matter where you're at this morning, Jesus wants to pull you out of that. Jesus wants to rescue you. And it may be a painful process. David experienced the consequences. He realized that, oh, breaking God's commandments It created all this family havoc. His sons were trying to to take over being king. He lost a child. There were plagues. All types of things that happened in David's life that wouldn't have had to happen if he had only stayed true to Jesus. But Jesus still took it. And he turned it around for good. And he brought Solomon out of that mix, the wisest king that we have in history. And through his reign, eventually good things happened. I love what it says in the book, Steps to Christ, talking about you and me. It says this, Jesus loves to have us come to him as we are, sinful, helpless, dependent. We may come with all our weakness, our folly, our sinfulness, and fall at his feet in penitence. There's a Savior for you today. This Christmas, there is a Savior who has been born and His name is Jesus. And He's come to save you from your sins. He knows what you're going through. He was born in the flesh, likeness of sinful flesh like us, so that He could be a merciful and complete and full and perfect Savior for you this morning. He loves to have you come to Him. Even when you're sinful, even when you're helpless, even when you're dependent. In fact, if you aren't coming in that way this morning, if this Christmas you're coming to Jesus with all you have to offer instead of looking for what He has to offer, then you're in the place that Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 21-31. He said, the prostitutes, they're going to get into heaven before you. Let that sink in. If we aren't coming to Jesus helpless, dependent, and recognizing our sin, and letting Him be a Savior to save us from that sin and bring us an entirely new life, then the prostitutes who turn to Jesus will get into heaven before us. Jesus loves to have us come to Him. That is good news for us this morning. And then it goes on to say this, It is His glory to encircle us in the arms of His love and to bind up our wounds, to cleanse us from all impurity. The glory of God is revealed in a manger where the God of the universe came down to be a Savior on a sinful planet. And He came in a lineage of sinners, some of the gravest sinners in history. And that is good news for you and I this morning because we have a Savior and His name is Jesus and He has come to save us from our sins. Jesus had incest in His family. He had prostitution. He had all adultery, murder, all types of things. But Jesus, the very name means Savior. He has come because it is His privilege, it's His joy, it's His glory to encircle you in His arms of love and to lift you 
out of whatever mess you may be in this morning. Matthew 1, goes on to say, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, this entire lineage, this, this whole history leading to the birth of Jesus, it was all for a very specific purpose so that you could walk out of here this morning knowing something. Do you want to know what it is? It's really, really good news. Walk out of here knowing this for a fact. It goes on to say this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Not a God who's set apart from us, a God who saves us from the other side of the bank, but a God who dives into your situation, who comes close to you and your family, who comes close to you in your work situation, wherever you're at, a God who wraps his arms of love around you and says, I'm right here with you. I'm holding you in the midst of this, and we're going to get through this, and I'm going to turn it around for good, and I'm going to deliver you out of this mess. That's the story of Christmas. And that's the story of a diner at 3 a.m. in Honolulu where Tony began to get the idea. And I'll just go ahead and read the way that he writes it because it goes a lot better that way. It says, After they left, I found out from Harry, the big guy behind the counter, that they came to the diner every night. I asked him if I could come back the next night and throw Agnes a party. Harry said, Okay, but only on the condition that his wife do the cooking and that he be allowed to make the cake. Remember, Agnes has never had a birthday party in her entire life. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner, and I had picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and had made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes! The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15 a.m., every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. And Tony is a pastor, by the way. It's a pastor in a diner at 3.15 a.m. with wall-to-wall prostitutes about to throw a birthday party. At 3.30, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready and we all screamed, Happy birthday, Agnes! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted. Her mouth fell open. Her legs buckled. When we finished singing, her eyes moistened. When the cake was carried out, she started to cry. Harry gruffly mumbled, Blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles for you. Finally, he did. The cutting of the cake took even longer. Cut the cake, Agnes. We all want some. Look, Harry, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? If we don't eat it right away, Sure, if you want to keep it, keep it. Take the cake home if you want. Can I? Then looking at me, I live just down the street. I want to take the cake home. Okay, I'll be right back. She carried that cake out the door like it was the Holy Grail. We stood there motionless, a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, What do you say? we pray. What would you say in that moment? What would you do in that moment? Your wall-to-wall prostitutes a birthday party, throwing a party for Agnes who has never had a birthday in her life. Does a Christian have a place? Should a Christian be in a place like that? 
Is it okay for us to care about prostitutes? Should we draw close to people? Unless we're holier than Jesus, friends, that is exactly where you and I are called. Christmas would not be Christmas if we only celebrate what Jesus has done and not let what Jesus has done become a part of our own experience. Jesus came and was born so that He could come and live in you. Paul says it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That means that Jesus living in you will love people the same way that Jesus did. That Jesus will love prostitutes the same way that Jesus did. That He will transform your experience so that you too can have a part in experiencing the life-transforming power that comes from selflessly serving others. And this makes a world of a difference. This will change the world. I love how it puts it in Welfare Ministry, page 192. It says, Many not of our faith are longing for the very help that Christians are in duty bound to give. If God's people would show a genuine interest in their neighbors. Think about your neighbors for a second. If I actually cared about them and their lives, something could happen. Many would be reached by the special truths for this time. We want to share with people. We want them to know about Jesus. We want them to know about the three angels' messages. We want them to know about the Sabbath and the blessing it is. And that will start by genuinely caring for them and what they are going through. Nothing will or ever can give character to the work like helping the people just where they are. Thousands might today be rejoicing in the message if those who claim to love God and keep His commandments would work as Christ worked. You imagine the attraction that would take place in this place if we lived a life that was like that. If you and I loved people like Jesus loved people. If you and I loved people like Tony loved people. We don't just have to imagine I can actually tell you from our Facebook page. I was just looking at it after the Hope Clinic and people started writing in about the difference that you made in their lives. Because you are a church who cares about people who are hurting. You are a church who is willing to give selflessly of your time and your resources to make a difference in lives. And I just want you to know the difference that that made. One lady wrote and she said, such an amazing clinic. The most kind people ever. And I got both vision and dental, and I'm so appreciative of this opportunity. Laura writes, and she's writing in Spanish, and so this is the translation that Facebook gave me. Thank you very much to all of you for your good attention. God bless you all. I couldn't tell you anything as I was checking out because I got a tooth extracted, and I couldn't talk much. But thanks to all of you boys and girls, and the church staff, and to all the people that this beautiful cause took place. Again, many thanks, and may God bless you always. Another lady said, there's no better waiting room than that of our Father in heaven. People sat where you're sitting for hours with the hope of getting a tooth pulled, of getting a cleaning, things that we might take for granted. And that made a world of difference for them. Friends, that is attractive. 
Another one wrote a review on our church, said, excellent community, get her done group. That, uh, they actually bring their talents full circle to our community by not only sharing their spiritual and positive faith-based teachings, but offering the community free health care minus the bureaucracy that the insurance companies have us drowning in. Thank you. And it could go on. The people that were impacted. But here's the thing. The Hope Clinic, it doesn't happen every day. But your life happens every day. You drive past your neighbors every day. You encounter people at the grocery store every day. You see that lady who can't get this cart to her car and unload her groceries. You see those things on a daily basis and God is calling you to be the hands and feet of Jesus. To love people to Jesus. And as we love them, as we care about them, then they'll want to know about the God that we worship on Sabbath. Then they'll want to know about the God that we know is coming back soon to take us home. Then they'll want to know what makes a difference in our lives that fills us with such joy. I know that because of the experience of the Hope Clinic. And I know that from Tony's experience. As he finished there in, in the diner, and he challenged them. He said, let's, let's pray together. He goes on to, sit, to write that there in the diner, he's praying with the people, and they're all standing there in a circle praying together. He says, looking back now, it seems more than strange for me to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner at, in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do prayed for Agnes, for her salvation, that her life would be changed, that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and said with a trace of irritation, hey, you never told me that you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments, when just the right words come, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry responded, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I would join it. Friends, people are waiting to see the love of Jesus lived out in our lives. So I just want to invite you as we close this morning to pray a simple prayer Would you pray that Jesus would save us from our sin, our selfishness, and that He would free us to love the people around us and to lead others to that Savior who can set them free as well? Just join me in bowing your heads and just asking that Jesus would be born in us this Christmas. Jesus, You are so beautiful and so good to think of the heights that you came from, the glories of heaven to come and be born in a humble manger to a family that was shameful. God, thank you for being a full and complete Savior. Thank you for being Tamar's Savior. Thank you for being Rahab's Savior. Thank you for being Ruth's Savior and Bathsheba and David's Savior. And thank you for being our Savior this morning. Oh Jesus, we need you. We come to you helpless, dependent, and sinful and ask that you would encircle us this morning with your arms of love. 
that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, that Jesus would be born in us, and that you would lead us to love people the way that you love them. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.